You're listening to Global Conversations. Welcome back to the Global Conversations podcast. Um, my name is Larissa. I'm a podcast contributor, and this is part two of the podcast with Professor Miley, where we are discussing indigenous sovereignty, settler colonialism, um, and this time in part two, we're going to be talking about the broader themes of uh, indigenous reconciliation and sovereignty, both uh, within Canada and in Hawaii. Um, this is part two of a two-part podcast, uh, so you can listen to part one on Spotify or the Global Conversations website, and that, uh, and previously we talked about the historical background of the annexation of Hawaii and how current colonialist actions uh, are really reinforcing these notions of colonialism that have been continued throughout time ever since Hawaii has been annexed. And so we are going to jump right back into the conversation and talk about states and how Indigenous sovereignty and healing needs to be a bottom-up process. If states were to admit that their actions reflected continued conquest and colonialism, it would ultimately and inherently undo the power, the power structures that their whole system is founded on. And so I yeah. think it's such a critical point that you bring up how, how entrenched colonialism is throughout every single layer of government and institution that pretty much governs, our, governs in Canada our entire political system. And, and on that note, I, I just want to pull away slightly from the, the, the telescope project and, and kind of talk about uh, reconciliation in, in that we have the Truth and Reconciliation um, Council in, in Canada, but there's, it's evident that state-centered reconciliation and state-centered forms of healing, quote-unquote forms of healing, right. reproduces very like very strong eurocentric and state influenced settler colonialist views of indigenous life and violence and cultural genocide and and, and for reasons that i just listed state centered reconciliation attempts are largely unsuccessful if ever and so in the context of, of both canada and hawaii because i know indigenous conflict and issues are not uh, the same across the globe or even in between two countries. And so I was wondering in the context of uh, in Canada and Hawaii, what are some crucial steps to initiate political and policy change to enforce and realize Indigenous sovereignty? This is an excellent question. And uh, I'm so glad that you're asking it. And, you know, it reminds me of all the things that we talked about in our course, Paul 377, Truth, Reconciliation, Settler Colonialism. I'm, I'm teaching it again this semester and uh, it's been a joy to teach now almost fully twice. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's been a responsibility of mine being an indigenous person who is not native to these territories and lands to educate myself, first of all, on um, the history of indigenous peoples and nations of these territories, but also the history of genocide and in particular Canadian genocide of First Nation, Inuit and Métis peoples um, 
across what is now known as Canada. Um, and part of that for me coming to Toronto um, and being Malihini or in the Hawaiian language, uh, like a, a stranger in these lands, right? Um, is uh, an impulse to teach about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and to teach about how it stems from a genocidal kind of injustice done to First Nation Inuit and Métis people, but also that the sort of reconciliatory policy, politics, and ideology that come out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but really um, also stem from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, uh, you know, two decades earlier in 1996, which sort of first inaugurates ideas about um, attempting to try to reconcile Indigenous peoples and um, settler Canadians and the Canadian federal government because of the history of Indian residential schools, the 60s and 70s scoop. And that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. And um, education within universities is one sphere of where that work needs to be done. And so I take it to be a very serious responsibility to do that work um, because it, it isn't me teaching students about indigenous peoples, uh, culture and political philosophies and economic systems um, of these territories because um, that isn't my responsibility. That isn't my kuleana since I am Malihini here. Um, but what is a responsibility that I can take up to balance my relations with the indigenous peoples of these territories um, is to teach about settler colonialism and how reconciliation disguises and camouflages actually the colonial relationship of dispossession of indigenous peoples, territories and resources for the Canadian settler state to be what it is to uh, accumulate capital and embark on extractivist development projects, for instance, um, all the same while, you know, maintaining some spirit of uh, multiculturalism, you know, and, and liberal multiculturalism that's like progressive and all that. Um, so reconciliation in that sense is not a indigenous concept, right? That needs to be said first, like your question uh, gets at. Um, it is a kind of concept that comes out of uh, transitional justice and um, ideas of democracy and the kind of philosophical uh, thoughts around democracy. And it really stems from uh, a sort of post-World War II moment in considering how authoritarian regimes um, like apartheid South Africa, for instance, um, could transition into democratic governance. And so reconciliation was developed in this sort of historical legal political context that hinged on transitioning from an authoritative uh, sort of despotic regime like the apartheid um, white minority government of South Africa to a more rainbow democratic nation um, after, you know, taking up a sort of truth commission process to um, heal from past injustice and trauma. Well, in Canada, 
we've had a truth and reconciliation commission, but we have not had transition. And so what does that mean, right? What does it mean when a liberal multicultural democratic nation embarks on a reconciliation, a national reconciliation process that does not actually uh, produce any kind of transition. Well, I mean, it does a few things, right? It, it, it doesn't admit to uh, the kind of colonial violence that depends upon a sort of authoritarianism to say that indigenous peoples, First Nation, Inuit, Métis peoples um, need to be separated from their families, forcibly and tra transferred uh, from their um, nations into boarding schools to have the you know Indian beat out of them and to be educated uh, like um, uh, sort of uh, you know into Canadians uh, subjects and citizens, right? That is in and of itself a kind of authoritarian declaration to identify that Indigenous peoples are you know savage and uncivilized and need to be you know corrected and you know there's all sorts of violence and um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded that that's cultural genocide. Um, whereas the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women recently, um, I want to say in 2018, published its final report, which concluded that genocide has occurred, not just cultural genocide. So that gets at your question in the terms of policy. What's happened in Canada specifically has been genocide. The UN Genocide Convention identifies one of the tenets of a crime of genocide to be forcible removal of a population. That constitutes one part, but still a part of what internationally is understood through the UN Genocide Convention as genocide, a crime of genocide, a violation of genocide, forcible removal. Um, we could argue that there are other tenets of that genocide convention that apply and that do, um, and there's much research on this, but even because of the sort of Eurocentric roots of uh, theorizations of the term and legal category genocide, uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples in Canada because of Indian residential schools is not given its fair look and estimation um, because this is a indigenous racialized population in a uh, liberal multicultural settler colonial state. So um, in terms of policy, uh, some scholars such as David B. McDonald, who is a political scientist, uh, I believe at Guelph University, um, in his book, The Sleeping Giant Awakens, argues that um, genocide needs to be recognized, that one move to responsibility on part of um, settler society in Canada in specific is that settler society in Canada needs to recognize that uh, genocide has been committed against indigenous peoples, not just cultural genocide. Um, now that doesn't solve all the problems, right? And that's sort of uh, educational um, effort, but he also goes farther to suggest that the criminal code of Canada should be amended because currently um, the criminal code of Canada that has institutionalized the sort of UN language on 
the genocide convention excludes the tenant of that genocide convention that says forcible removal of a population constitutes genocide. Why would that be? Well, one answer, according to David B. McDonald, is that because the Indian residential school system, the 60s and 70s scoop, it is genocidal, was genocidal, and that kind of system still permeates kind of social life in Canada today, where you have, you know, intergenerational trauma that you've installed and, and, and sort of seeded into First Nation Inuit and Métis communities because of those policies and those systems. Um, McDonald argues that Canada purposefully excluded including forcible removal of populations um, because then it would be legally liable for a crime of genocide. And this is precisely why a Truth and Reconciliation Commission can perform a sort of gesture towards uh, healing or um, progressivism in relationship to indigenous peoples, while at the same time not being legally culpable for an international crime against uh, indigenous people, but also against um, human rights through genocide. And so he argues that that criminal code should be amended to include the forcible removal uh, uh, and transfer of populations, which would then open the door for um, the kind of judiciability of uh, crimes of genocide through Indian residential schools. But uh, the Canadian settler state doesn't have a lot of incentive to do that, right? Which makes it incredibly hard. Um, and this is why settler colonial nation states are so uh, cunning, right? It's, it's about, as you kind of said earlier, um, investing legally, not just even in sort of like social life uh, um, in terms of rhetoric and ideology, but it's about investing legally in the self-perpetuation of your authority, right? And what a lot of indigenous studies scholars say about that sort of settler state sovereignty and its sort of self-perpetuation through these sorts of legal sleights of hand or um, uh, kinds of magic tricks that are played um, is that it shows that the sort of territorial jurisdiction and authority of settler nation states is precarious, is incoherent. And when indigenous peoples like let's say um, Wet'suwet'en matriarchs and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs out in British Columbia um, re-territorialize themselves uh, on their unceded territories, live, build infrastructure, build healing centers to reconcile relationships between their own peoples, right? Um, not between the Canadian federal government and Wet'suwet'en people, but between Wet'suwet'en people or between um, Wet'suwet'en people and Gitsan people or other indigenous peoples, right? To reconcile those relationships that have been harmed because of colonialism and perhaps even internalized colonialism. You know, when, when, when that takes place, the provinces and the uh, federal government realize that their jurisdiction over those people and that territory is precarious 
And so it questions its own authority to have authority. And so indigenous studies scholars make these excellent points about how um, uh, reconciliation in a sense uh, never existed. And when the province and the, uh, the state, the federal government sort of trod out massive displays of militarized police to um, re-attain a sort of per, like idea of authority over these unceded territories, it's a way to fill in that incoherence and that gap in its own jurisdiction or its own authority over indigenous populations or indigenous you know, land. And um, that exposes that if we assume reconciliation um, isn't, uh, or was never, or was, let me back up. Um, if reconciliation in one sense never existed, and if, if we bracket that and we say um, that there is a possibility of indigenous peoples and the federal government of Canada reconciling, then scholars and activists are now saying because of the way that situations like Awatsotan have unfolded and others um, in Caledonia currently, um, in uh, uh, Nova Scotia, you know, the, these are not singular events. They're, uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing structure of settler colonialism, not just something in the past. Then reconciliation is actually dead and it, it if it didn't exist or if it existed um, and we bracket that, uh, these events are suggesting that it's, it's now dead and that this era of possibly reconciling with indigenous people is, is no more. And instead of proposing amendments or policy changes for reconciliation, what needs to be the focus is um, giving land back actually. And that for scholars like Glenn Coltard, gets at sort of the structural dimension of the colonial relationship that always already tries to be camouflaged and hidden through now these sort of conciliatory gestures of reconciliation. I think, I think you really tie together just how entrenched and systematic, uh, I mean, systematic racism or indigenous oppression is within the federal government and all the layers underneath it. I think that was a, a big, uh, a really nice point that you highlighted through all your answers today. Um, I just wanna say thank you so much for, for bringing to the forefront such incredibly important issues and, and for sharing your expertise and your extremely important research. It's been such an honor for me to listen to and I, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast will be so pleased with everything that you're saying and it's, it's just wonderful the research that you're doing.